Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. All right. This week we have uh, an exciting guest. I'll tell you about him when when I introduce him. But his I'll tell you a little bit now. His name is Leighton Stewart. He is doing a lot of work now on the climate issue, particularly CO two. But he has a background, a major background in the oil industry. He's actually been part of one of the greatest shale energy success stories, um, you know, in the last decade, which is EOG. Uh, resources, which is a fascinating story as well. So I wanted to, I met Leighton uh, recently at the CPAC conference. I guess it's just CPAC since it's Conservative Political Action Conference where I spoke. Uh, he was in the audience and uh, we got to know each other and I thought he'd make a fascinating, fascinating guest. So stay tuned. We'll be back with Leighton Stewart on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now is Leighton Stewart. Leighton, welcome to Power Hour. Hey, thank you. Happy to be on. All right. So we met uh, at CPAC, and you were, uh, I was on a panel on fossil fuels, and you were fortuitously in the audience, and I learned uh, at, the, at the event you mentioned that you're working on a really interesting project with the issue of CO2 and climate and fossil fuels. Um, but then we also talked, I think, the next day or the day after, and I learned that you had a history in the oil and gas industry. So let, let's talk about that first. How did you get started in oil and gas? Well, I went to school, studied geology. And then after a tour in the Air Force, I went to work for Shell Oil Company, as any young guy coming out of college with a degree would try to do, would be find a job. I found one with Shell and worked with them for about 16 years. And then uh, with a couple of other companies before my career was over with and uh, was very active in the oil and gas industry. But among other things, I was also even considered by my uh, by the other folks in the oil and gas industry as an environmentalist. And when I was running a company out of New Orleans called the Louisiana Land and Exploration Company, we were very actively interested in trying to uh, really help stop the loss of wetlands in the United States, as well as in the lower Mississippi River Delta, where we owned a lot of coastal wetlands. And during that time period, myself and the company even got an award from the EPA for environmental excellence. I sometimes wonder if I'm the only guy that came out of the energy industry that ever got an award from the EPA for environmental excellence. But anyway, I did. That just gives you an idea that I really am also an environmentalist at heart. I am not an environmental extremist, though. There is a world of difference in being an environmentalist and being an environmentalist extremist. And I, I certainly don't have much respect for the latter because 
they kind of come in with a no holds barred attack on people that don't agree with them. And I think we ought to be looking at the science and trying to decide what the real answers are rather than what they want the answers to be. And so that's where I've tried to head with my studies in the climate area. I was actually at a meeting of a bunch of old college people, 50th anniversary or whatever it was, and I found out that carbon dioxide levels in Earth's atmosphere used to be 7,000 parts per million. And I thought, oh, gee, that must have had a humongous impact on Earth's climate. And I had written another book on a different subject, actually on nutrition and health, called Sugar Busters, that had been number one on the New York Times for several months. And I thought, well, I'll get a little uh, pamphlet out, if nothing else, to let all of my fellow scientists know that CO2 levels used to be 7,000 parts per million, and I'll document the impact that had on Earth's old CO2 and temperature relationship. Well, after about three or four months, I said, Leighton, you're the dumbest researcher there ever was because I was not finding any real significant evidence that backed that up. So I finally walked around, got on the other side of the table and said, well, I guess I'll try to see if CO2 has not been having that much of an impact on Earth's climate. And that's what got me into where I am today. I finally started piling up peer-reviewed papers that did have real evidence in them that showed me that that was the case over the last 500 million years of Earth's temperature. And so I ended up writing a book called Fire, Ice, and Paradise, which was meant for the man on the street. It was kind of a global climate change 101. And I urged people not to necessarily listen to what my opinions were in the book, but to look at the evidence that was in the book and make up their own mind, because that's what we need to do. But most importantly, we need to look at the evidence and the real evidence. And uh, so that's where I've come out now. I'm just trying to tell people that if you look at the real empirical evidence, the observations of what has happened currently, recently, and also much, much farther back, you'll see there's not a really good association between the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and what Earth's temperature is. And so I'm just trying to let people know that they need to look at the evidence and don't be swayed by these climate models that come out and project catastrophic warming when the real evidence doesn't suggest that that's going to happen because it has not happened in the past when CO2 levels were much, much, much higher. So anyway, that's a way around of saying to where I've come from. Yes, I'm contaminated with some of the people and that I've worked for the energy industry, but I do not, I'm retired now. I don't have any working interest in any oil or gas wells or anything like that. I'm just a retired scientist that's gotten interested in this subject, and I don't want to see my children and your children and grandchildren have to pick up another several trillion dollars in debt trying to reduce carbon dioxide, which is not having much of an impact on the climate 
and which is totally beneficial for plant and animal life, ecosystems and habitats. And so that's where I am now. Eric, I'll be happy to discuss any of that that you would like to talk about. Okay, well, I, I'm going to go back to your, uh, I want to discuss all of it, but I'm going to go back to uh, your involvement in the energy industry since I, every time I've talked to you, I find it funny that you, you immediately want to go to what you're doing today, which I appreciate since that's what you're doing today. But for me, you know, I'm very excited about the energy industry. Um, so, I mean, you've been involved in, in a lot of uh, exciting projects, including you were involved in EOG, right? And that's, I mean, that's, for those who don't know, EOG is one of the leaders in the modern uh, shale oil revolution. That is correct. I'm on the board of EOG, and I'm uh, exceptionally proud of that company for what they've done. Because when I joined that board 10 or 11 years ago, I think they were about the fourth largest independent in the country, and now they're number one by 10 or $11 billion over the company in second place, which is now, I believe, Anadarko. I, I guess I would have to say there's a caveat to that because ConocoPhillips has split out their uh, marketing arm recently, and they may still be the biggest independent because of, of being such a big company in the past and having worldwide assets. But... EOG has been the leader in the horizontal drilling and fracking industry, and they are clearly the leader. Uh, Eagleford, Bakken, now in West Texas, etc., and uh, they are by far the largest producer of horizontal oil in the country. They don't have problems getting their wells fracked. They don't have problems getting anything into groundwater. And by the way, nobody else has had that problem either in the modern uh, horizontal drilling situations because you're thousands of feet generally from where the groundwater levels would be, where the drinking water level would be. <clears throat> and the last thing that a producer wants to happen is to fracture into a water-producing formation because it will ruin your well and the several million dollars that you just spent drilling that well. So people in the industry are extremely uh, careful relative to what happens when they put the pressure in the ground and they fracture the rock so that the hydrocarbon will come out. So I am certain that What's being said about that, based on all the evidence that I've seen and read about, it's just not true that the people that are out doing this horizontal fracking are contaminating the drinking water at the real shallow levels. Um, so you've had, I mean, you've had an inside view in, in you know, arguably the, I mean, you mentioned ConocoPhillips, you know, which is, uh, you know, a very large major and then split into parts. But, you know, one of the, the best, if not the best, oil and gas story of the last decade. So what, is it, what has it been like to, to witness that? Because of an EOG that used to be Enron Oil and Gas, I mean, this was not considered a great asset, let's say, 12, 13, 14 years ago. And now it's, you know, it's amazing. What, what's that been like? Oh, it's been the best uh, experience I've ever had in the industry, uh, certainly at least in the last 25 years. I was fortunate enough when I was with Shell to be there on the night that the geophysicist with Shell, a guy named Mike Forrest, noticed that he could see hydrocarbons in the ground on the seismic data. 
called bright spots or hydrocarbon indicators or whatever. And uh, Mike and I were working on mutual prospects, getting ready for a sale in the Gulf of Mexico. And I got to help Mike document the fact that he really was seeing hydrocarbon on his seismic data. And it gave Shell about a two-year jump on all of industry and on the Next sale after that that I was the sale leader on. Wait, wait. So just, let me just make sure. Is this we blew industry away? Yeah. So is this the advent of three D seismic imaging? Is it what? Is this the advent of three D seismic? Like, was this a major milestone in terms of you know modern? Because they talk about it, you know, with everything now doing seismic. Is this yeah. an early example oh, yeah. of that? Three, but three D seismic was a major step forward on its own right because it let us see into the ground so much better and see where the faults were and and uh, all of the places that you might find hydrocarbon trapped uh, beneath our surface. Uh, but this was the first time that we had been able to know that we were looking at either oil or gas in the ground. And when you get ready to write a bid for several tens of millions of dollars for some little track out in the Gulf of Mexico. You like to lower the risk as much as possible when you get ready to submit that check. And this really let us lower the risk. So, but the 3D seismic data has just made seeing the hydrocarbon in the ground that much better than on some of the earlier seismic that we were looking at. But anyway, that were, so I really have been fortunate to see two really big things happen in our industry, and that was one, to be there when it happened and take advantage of when it happened. And now I've seen these guys at EOG come in and use their brains and technology to not only get gas out of the ground, but most importantly, where they really jumped ahead of everybody was being able to get oil out of these tight, tight, source rocks and that has just come in and blown industry away uh it's going to make us the top producer probably in the world of oil within the next few years uh it's going to be a boon for the united states of america the carbon dioxide that will go in the atmosphere by bringing it back out of the ground from where it's been sequestered all these years in these source rocks is going to be beneficial for all life on Earth. It's going to feed the plants, as we all learned in the third grade, CO2 is what plants eat. And we already know that Earth is getting greener despite all the bad things we're doing to it. Earth is getting net, net greener now for the last three decades as proven by a satellite that's up that can measure Earth's greenness just because we're putting more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so uh, it's just been marvelous to see all this happening, and it's very uh, discouraging to see our current administration and the Environmental Protection Agency trying to convince all of your listeners out there that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. It is not, there is not one, not a single example of carbon dioxide being a pollutant. 
Go ask any chemistry professor to give you an example of it, and they will not be able to come up with an example of carbon dioxide being a pollutant. It's necessary for all life on Earth. So anyhow, this story is turning out real well, except for one thing. The public and the true environmentalists out there have been grossly misled on this issue of what is happening when we put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. One, it is a very weak greenhouse gas. And two, it is just sitting there feeding all of our plant and animal life because it's making the plants grow like crazy and there are thousands. I admit, I, I repeat, thousands of studies done by the agricultural community worldwide that prove what happens when you give these plants more CO2, not more water, not more fertilizer in the ground, just adding carbon dioxide. And it is absolutely marvelous. So earlier this week, we had the IPCC release their second report. The first one, they were 95% confident in, you know, however they, whatever kind of mealy mouth language they used to say, the earth is warming, but then they want you to believe it's a catastrophe. And now, you know, they're certain that it's, that there is a catastrophe. Uh, what did you think of this week's report? Oh, well, I think it's just a bunch of bull myself <laughs> because they are still relying on these unvalidated computer models, unvalidated man-made computer models. There are some of the inputs to those models that they do not know for sure what the impact is uh, of it. They, they don't know how sensitive the Earth is to CO2 or how sensitive it is not to carbon dioxide. They don't know the aerosol effect. They don't know what the net-net contribution of low-level clouds are, whether they really reflect more of the sun's energy or whether they cause the earth to warm some more. So they don't know if they're cooling or warming. They don't even know the sign of that, plus or minus. And so what we are seeing, because media likes catastrophes, because they know we humans line up in front of the set or get next to the radio to listen about all these catastrophes that happen, they don't give the full range of model projections. They just talk about the one at the very end that says, hey, Earth's going to burn up by the end of the century if we keep putting this big, dangerous, pollutant carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So I don't have much respect at all for a politically driven uh, institution like the IPCC when they're not really looking at their own data, if you go down into their thousand-page report or whatever, you can find out that they've got a lot of data in there that actually conflicts with what they've just come out with. But they don't tell you about that because it doesn't sell. Catastrophes don't sell. So again, it's just the way that the public is getting misled on this issue. Now, one thing the president has helped us with is he continues to, I guess I'll say, admit some untruths because between Benghazi and the IRS and all of the promises about what was going to happen with Obamacare, the public 
is, and it's showing in the polls big time, the public does not trust our president like they did early on. And so now I think the public is going to be more interested in saying, hey, is this a climate change thing driven by man-made CO2? Maybe another one of our president's uh, areas that he tends to stretch the truth a little too far, if not turn it completely around. And so I think that we're going to have an opportunity now to get the general public more interested in what the real facts are on this issue instead of being misled by all of these, the hyperbole that's coming out of our, out of our administration. And so I do have uh, some optimism now that we're going to have a bigger audience to listen to out there. And in particular, I think the true environmentalists, not the environmental extremists, because we'll never turn them around. They've got other motivations. But I think the true environmentalists are going to be real interested now in looking in some of the facts of what is and is not driving Earth's climate. And so maybe we'll get this all turned around. Maybe we'll stop having the EPA issue regulations that don't come out of our lawmakers, out of Congress and the Senate and stuff like that. I'm hopeful that they will stop issuing so many of these extreme regulations which are made to treat CO2 as if it is some big, nasty, dirty thing that's going into the atmosphere when the plants, most of which evolved when the Earth had a much, much higher level of carbon dioxide. We need to see that CO2 level just go ahead and continue to rise because it's going to make our plants much more productive as these thousands of studies by the world's agricultural community prove. Yeah, one thing that I, I talk about in in my upcoming book, which I am working on all the time, so I'm thinking about it, is how revealing it is that this effect, which I sometimes call the fertilizer effect of CO2, it's never even discussed, even though, as you said, we learn it in third grade. It's as if we're told in third grade that, that CO2 is plant food, and we're told in fourth grade to forget this for all time. So even if there were a much more significant greenhouse warming, it would still be relevant to forming a big picture that there is this fertilizing effect, and yet it's it's not mentioned at all, which seems revealing of the honesty of the people propounding the theory of catastrophe. What do you What do you think of that? Well, the people that are continuing to talk about catastrophes, you've got about six different groups out there that are making money or promotions or whatever off of that. You've got the green industries that are loving all of these catastrophic forecasts because they're selling us green products. You've got the Wall Street brokers that if we ever get a U.S.-wide cap-and-trade system in, we'll make billions of dollars in those trades, being the middleman on those trades. Any administration, not just the Obama administration, but any administration likes a huge flow of tax dollars, and that would certainly happen with all these uh, cap-and-trade things going on, because they can take those dollars and they can allocate them into places which really kind of gets down to being able to buy votes with some of that money. 
The one I've been most disappointed with is academia, because if you were a an assistant professor and wanted to get promoted to professor, one of the best ways to do it is to bring big grants into the institution. And having been on the board at Tulane and the largest college at SMU, we loved those professors that brought in those big grants because it helps your university get ranked nationally. In other words, to go to the peg on that, you're not going to be ranked in the top 25 universities in the United States of America unless you're bringing in every year at least $30 million of research money. And Mr. Gore started getting the research dollars coming out of the government flowing into the institutions that were trying to find the problems with CO2. That happened back in the early 90s, and it's still flowing in that direction. It's not going out to find out what's really causing climate change. It's going out to find what the negative impact of CO2 is. So as you read a lot of these reports coming out of the institutions, you find out that, well, there's some decent information in there, but a lot of the words that they say say, well, we need to continue to just see how much impact CO2 is really having so they can go in for another grant. And uh, it's, you know, there's a, there's a conflict of interest there because to get promoted or to ultimately get tenuring, which is the gold ring when they can't find you, uh, fire you, uh, that's a mighty big thing to Keep bringing a lot of dollars into the institution because it'll move you ahead of those professors that aren't aren't getting that done. Then you've got the environmental extremists that are just trying to scare the money out of your pocket because the bigger their organization gets, the bigger their salaries get. And lastly, you got the media that likes catastrophes, and that's humanity's fault because we all line up and watch them every time they blurt one out. <laughs> and so those... Those six things are driving this problem. But let me mention the seventh one that gets back to the IPCC, this Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. There are approximately 192 countries that are involved in the IPCC. 172 of them are undeveloped countries. So the other 20 that's left there, in all of these meetings, gatherings they have in Copenhagen or wherever, they try to come up and say, well, the developed countries owe all of us poor undeveloped countries a lot of money because you've been contaminating our atmosphere with carbon dioxide ever ever since the Industrial Revolution about 150 years ago. And so they want us to pay them, we 20, they want us to pay them millions and millions and ultimately together billions and billions of dollars annually because we have fouled their air with carbon dioxide. Well, when I can point to 5,327 studies by the world's agricultural community that shows the benefit of more carbon dioxide and the amount that it causes plant foods, the food crops, to grow. My logic 
really begins to short out on me when I say, now, wait a minute, they want us to pay them for having given them more food for the last 150 years? And it just doesn't make any sense that the numbers ought to come out that way. But when they get ready to vote, you got 172 people there that are going to vote that CO2 is a bad thing and we've got to pay them money because we've been putting it back in the atmosphere. Well, and as I find that aspect objectionable, I find even more objectionable the the parasitical leaders of the leaders so-called of these countries and uh, I think unethical leaders of our countries essentially prescribing energy deprivation for the future because many of these are countries that desperately could use cheap, plentiful, liable energy and they're certainly not going to get it from sun rays and wind gusts and yet they're they're being told instead of emulate what we've done, emulate what the successful countries have done. Instead, it's this very short-sighted play the victim and try to expropriate some tiny thing, and yet still, which will just go to the leaders, and then the people will still suffer just as much. That's correct. They will, and they'll end up, what energy they're paying for, they'll end up paying more for it because the wind and the solar energy is so much more expensive than what we're getting from oil, gas, and coal right now. And so you're absolutely right. It is going to hurt the poor people on Earth the most, the people that are living on the edge of starvation right now as their you know, energy costs them more or becomes unreliable if it's solar and wind, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. It's going to push some of those people over the edge, and uh, I could easily say, without any uh, worry of overstating it, if we keep going on this route of this expensive, unreliable energy, when we have all of this available cheap energy, reliable energy, it's going to kill a lot of people. I mean, we're talking about millions of people. They're going to starve to death. It's just, you're right when you say that we're really doing a bad thing to the undernourished people in the undeveloped country around the world when we're not trying to really get them in the mainstream of having the benefits of this reliable fossil fuel. Um, so one one objection that you get, you mentioned the issue very early on of is CO2 a major driver of the global climate system and as evidence for no, you gave the fact that, or, or claims that the Earth's, the, the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere has been you know, 7,000 parts per million, which is almost 20 times what it is today. Uh, I've heard a counter to that, that, well, the sun's intensity was lower back then, but if we had had the same sun intensity back then, it would have been super, super hot. What would you say to that? Well, okay, let's go to, instead of going 560 million years back, let's go 430 when we had a major glaciation that had ice down to about 60 degrees latitude on the hemispheres. And the CO2 level was 4,400 parts per million, which would be 11 times what it is today. How did we have a major glaciation at that time? You know, well, they'd say that they'd say the sun isn't as intense. They'd say the sun was less intense back. Well, yeah, but the sun has been getting warmer and warmer and warmer through time. So I, I moved forward over three hundred 
<laughs> over 300 million years, excuse me, 100 and something million years, I apologize, 130 million years, to show that the earth was still getting real cold at that time. Why are we in an ice age now? We're in an ice age now. It, the earth is cold for 85 to 90,000 years, and it is warm only about 10 or 15,000 years. We're extremely lucky to be living at this particular time because we're in what's called an interglacial period. What you know, the sun, its intensity hadn't changed that much. Orbital parameters have changed some, and because we've had at least eight major glacial, interglacial cycles in the last 800,000 years. And so uh, you, you can't use that excuse that they're trying to throw up today because the sun hasn't changed that much in overall intensity in the last 800,000 years compared to the last 560 million years. It's just a blink of an eye. So the Earth's solar intensity shouldn't have changed that much. Um, I have another question that's related to the topic of fossil fuels that I, comes up once in a while. What do you think of the abiogenic theory of fossil fuels? Uh, okay, the abiogenic uh, evolution of the fossil fuel? Well, the idea that it's not actually, you know, ancient dead plants, it's, uh, you know, natural processes. This is, you know, within the... Well, I think, there, I think there was a lot of natural methane, etc. Look at other planets in the solar system. Some of them have liquid seas of pure methane. Uh, I think a lot of that may have ultimately come that way. But we also know, because we can see the critters in the ocean, for instance, that are living out there, that have carbon-based bodies that die and fall to the seafloor, and in, when they're in a real low oxygen environment, all of that gets preserved, and it gets buried and buried by more and more of that, which you can just go back through an analogous situation and say, well, that's how our source rocks got deposited. We're in these times on Earth when these seas were sometimes shallow and they, did, they weren't oxygenated, oxygenated very well. And they built up all these source rocks. So I think you can get it both ways, but we know that it comes out of the source rocks. We know when we look at some of the shale layers in and around those source rocks, and see fossils in there that we're seeing fossil plants or seeing skeletons of all of these critters that contributed to that. So, yeah, you can get it both ways, but what we're seeing in the source rocks today, I don't think came out of the sky and jumped into those source rocks. It was put there by various organisms that died and, and uh, fell into that, whether they be living uh, organisms that are, were made out of meat or whatever, or whether they were just leaves from the plants. Um, so you you yourself um, are on this mission to educate the public about CO2. The industry that you've been part of and, and are still part of in one or another is being attacked by this constantly. What do you think they've done wrong in addressing the issue and what, 
What do you think they should do? They haven't done well at all. I was on the API, American Petroleum Institute board, for a number of years, and uh, the problem we had was the big marketers that were in API, whether in the old days it was Exxon and Chevron and Texaco and Amoco and on and on and on, they're so much in competition with each each other that they would never agree on what we should have been doing to try to educate the public on all of the benefits that were coming out of the oil and gas industry at that time. I wasn't involved in the coal industry at that time. But we we just never did a good uh, good job of that while all the time, all that time that we were wasting, the environmental groups, some legitimate, some environmental extremists, I'd say, kept advertising how bad oil and gas was, oil, gas, and coal were. And so we just lost all those decades that we could have been telling the public what oil and gas has done for the earth. In your own writings, you've done a good job of showing what has happened to Earth's environment, at least the environment for humans. And as an aside on that, a lot of these environmentalist extremists seem to want to think that man is not part of Earth's evolution, that uh, animals are the only thing that happens to count around here. Well, just like our animals or birds or whatever, they seem to go to a place where they can build a good, nice nest. They seem to go to places where they can find a good food supply and things like that. And as you've pointed out, yes, we can go build nice houses now that we couldn't build a couple of hundred years ago when we didn't have this flow of oil and gas and the big use of turning coal into electricity so we would have air conditioning and heat to, you know, keep us out of having these extreme weather events that kill people all the time. Uh, what What's your number? 98% uh, better off now <laughs> from extreme events than we were a couple hundred years ago? All of that's true. We should have been saying that all along. So I'm disappointed in the industry I was in. There's no question about that. But marketers they want you to come into their oil and gas station and they don't want you going to their competitors across the street so they don't tend to get together and and, uh, really cooperate with a whole lot of this good news that they ought to be doing that is my opinion (laughs) personal opinion so what do you what do you think they should do going forward i mean granted they put themselves in a pretty bad situation well they need to get out there and tell this story they need to make videos they ought to be making movies about it and uh, some people are trying to do some of that now but that's exactly what they ought to be doing because if we add together a lot of your observations about how much better off the environment is particularly for people on earth And by the way, we're the only one of all of those different animals, birds, whatever, that has a brain that can actually help improve the environment. Yeah, we may have screwed up some of it in the past, but we also have a brain that can improve it. Uh, 
we ought to be talking about that and all the positive things that can come out of man having a rightful place on earth because we've evolved here right alongside all these animals or whether God put us here in an instant of time uh, and made our brains all of a sudden be able to comprehend everything or whatever, we have come right along with all these other animals. And here we are today with the ability to do a lot of good things and not just bad things to our planet. And we need to be stressing all of those things. We need to be stressing the dire situation all these people are in these undeveloped countries and what all gas and coal can do for them as opposed to trying to go with something much more expensive and unreliable, the wind and the solar. That's exactly what we ought to be doing. So you uh, you made the distinction earlier between an environmentalist and an environmental extremist. Uh, I'm curious what you think that is because I, I distinguish between somebody who is concerned about environment for human purposes and someone who's concerned about it from a non-human uh, perspective. I think anytime we say the environment comes before human beings, we're on the same premise as the so-called extremists. Yeah, if you, that's right. If it's that bad, I agree with you. Well, well, what would you say, well, just, just in your own words, what is an environmental extremist? <laughs> it's somebody that has an ulterior motive of what they're trying to accomplish, or they are totally uneducated about what their gut feel is on the issue. To some people, environmentalism is a religion. It does not matter what you're going to tell them. You will never change their mind. They do not uh, input new data into their system. And uh, the comment that I heard, the quote that I heard about that a long time ago was, a debate, I guess, at one of these old uh, big environmentalists, John Maynard Keynes, was uh, saying to somebody after they were talking about something and they had various facts in front of them. And the economist said, if the facts change, I'll change my opinion. And what do you do, sir? And so that says a whole lot of it. Because people, a lot of people just haven't heard the facts. Climate science is very complex. And let me expand on that a little bit. It is horribly complex. And you need to have a degree in some kind of serious science to really be able to start getting your arms around it. Well, most of our population, uh, people aren't trained as scientists. They aren't. They're trained as something else, social scientists maybe. But I have found in talking to the public that I'm getting a lot more traction when I go try to first engage the true environmentalist out there uh, because it's a whole lot easier to understand what makes a plant grow, what makes a food crop grow, what makes the forest grow, etc., and get their attention to all of the benefit of simply feeding the green part of Earth more and also being able to tell them, hey, we 
Mother Nature's been doing a real live experiment along with man now because we have been putting more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for the last 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. And look what it's showing. The sensor on this satellite is showing for the last three decades, Earth is getting greener and greener and greener, despite us paving everything inside with asphalt, concrete, putting buildings everywhere, and even clear-cutting a lot of the rainforest on Earth. Earth is getting greener and greener and greener because we're feeding it more carbon dioxide, which is what the plant kingdom eats. And it's making the habitats and ecosystems more robust, the ones that are remaining out there, and I do believe that we should save as much of that as we can. The good news is, as you continue to feed it more CO2 and the plants grow more robustly and give us more food per acre than they are right now, we'll have to cut down fewer remaining acres of pristine environment that are still on Earth. And we can save them for a lot of the wildlife and everything like that. So all of this is pointing in the same direction that carbon dioxide is so totally opposite of being a dangerous pollutant that it is it's just a sin that it's that way and I have to believe that people in Washington have enough sense to understand that and so I'm really trying to lead without that more now than trying to get into you know the science the more complicated science of what's causing climate change and not climate change. I'm happy to talk about it because I can talk about it in an empirical sense. I can look back 500 million years and say, look, there was no association between CO2 and temperature at that time or this time or the other time and bring it all the way up to our current 16-year pause, as they want to call it, in earth warming, while the CO2 level has gone up almost 10% in that time, and the earth is not warming. And just take that back to last century, the last millennia, the last million years, the last 50 million years or 500 million years, and you don't see that big impact of carbon dioxide on earth's temperature. There are at least 22 drivers of Earth's climate, and carbon dioxide is only one, and it is a relatively weak one compared to some of these other things, particularly the sun and the movement of the ocean currents and things like that. You know, I think that's another example of just where it's very revealing that this is never even mentioned. It's not as if, it's one thing to say, I have a theory that CO2 is the primary driver or a dominant driver, but I acknowledge all of these different things and I'll educate you about it and I'll, I'll give you my theory of where it fits in and I'll explain to you why I think these models are valid. But they don't do that at all. They just give you this very vague idea of a climate and and then they they claim, they just talk about this one variable and they draw pictures of the earth on fire and make you scared. And that even if even if their theory had much more validity to it, that would be a very dishonest means of communicating. And so I, I you you shared with me a, a presentation or a pamphlet when we met, which I thought was a very good summary. Um, and that leads us to where can where can listeners learn more about the work that you're doing and get some of this information? Well, let me talk about let me talk about three places that they ought to go. And of course, 
I'm the chairman of a nonprofit on this. I'm not making one penny off of it. I'm trying to save the uh, economic earth for my kids and grandkids and so <laughs> forth. But uh, we we really need to go out there and fight this on every front we can fight it on. It, it is just highly frustrating not to be able to get in a debate with the people you're talking about. You've had some debates, and you've won some debates. I think in the eight years I've been at this, I've had four debates, and really only three, because the last one that I was supposed to have, along with one of the guys, who's one of the sources I'm going to give you in just a minute if I get back to it, uh, it ended up that their scientists didn't show up for the debate. They sent a lawyer and some admiral of the Navy or something that <laughs> claimed not to be a scientist, and so we had nobody to debate. All they said was, well, the science is settled. Look at these societies that say they think global warming is real and CO2 is a big cause. So it's totally frustrating. Well, why aren't we having the debates? The reason we're not having the debates is this is a scientific issue. Climate change is complex science. If they don't have empirical evidence to show, real observations to show up all of these projections they're making and everything, that they've happened before when CO2 levels were high, et cetera, they can't enter a scientific argument. So I know why I can't get anybody to debate on this issue. It's because I can show them real empirical evidence from the last 16 years, the last century, the last millennia, the last 10,000 years, the last 800,000 years on back and show them that carbon dioxide is not correlated with causing climate change. It reacts to climate change sometimes but it's not causing it, and the ice cores from the different poles prove that the temperature changes ahead of the CO2 levels. So that's one reason we're not having the debate. So anyway, I've got a, a, a website called plantsneedco2.org and another one called co2isgreen.org. Org. It's a 501c4, so if we want to go to Washington and try to educate somebody that's a policymaker, we can try to get some of this data in front of the policymakers. Also, there is another great website, CO2 Science, that is run by Craig Idso, Dr. Craig Idso. And his yeah, he's great. He's been on the show yeah, before. Doc, yeah, yeah, no, really good. But then lastly, let me direct the audience to somebody that they'll believe more than they're going to believe late and there may be even Dr. Edso. It is called the right climate stuff.com. The right climate stuff.com. I gave a presentation to a bunch of these ex NASA scientists, people that aren't beholden to the administration anymore because they retired. They're primarily the old Apollo people that put our folks on the moon and brought them back. I gave a presentation on some of this empirical evidence to them about two and a half years ago. They ended up, to go to the bottom line, they put together a group of 25 or 30 of them to study climate change. They're all retired. 
They're not getting paid a penny. They don't work for big oil, big anything. They're not even all Republicans or all Democrats. <laughs> it is the most objective group of smart people I've ever seen. It's an interdisciplinary group made up of uh, physicists, geophysicists, astrophysicists, chemists, geochemists, uh, mathematicians, meteorologists, geologists, on and on, and a lot of them with PhDs and with impeccable reputations that they're willing now to risk because they don't believe that carbon dioxide is having a big impact on Earth's climate compared to all the natural drivers of climate. So send your people to the rightclimatestuff.com and see what they've come out with, and you're going to find out there's almost a laydown between uh, a lot of the uh, conclusions that have been come to on this issue. And that'll take some of the heat off of me catching the brunt of it. If they want to argue with the Apollo scientists, they can just go get after it because some of those guys and gals will be happy to talk to them about it. All right, sounds great. Well, we um, ever you, you gave those websites very clearly, so people check those out, and then we will put the links when we post the show, uh, either this week or next week. We will um, will include all those links. Uh, Layden, hang on for a second uh, after we wrap up, but I just want to, in front of the audience, thank you for for coming on the show. It's it's really great. I think both what you've done in the oil industry and out of it, and I'm glad that you're you're taking on this this battle as you say for i think the economic earth uh of the future because as as one of its inhabitants and hopefully one who will generate some more of its inhabitants uh i want that to to be a really good place to live okay well i appreciate you having me on and it's uh hats off to people like you that are trying to get the real information in front of people all right thanks a lot Thanks again to Leighton Stewart for coming on the show. I think we covered pretty much most of what uh, I wanted to cover. Uh, this didn't come up explicitly, but Leighton mentioned that he's trained as a geologist. I find that geologists tend to have some of the more rational views on these issues, as do geographers. And these are people who study big picture things, in the case of geologists, big picture uh, time-wise, in the case of geographer, often time-wise, but also just scope, looking at at different activity over the you know the whole span of the Earth and getting a big picture of impacts. And the more you think in that way, I think the more you realize that uh, the energy that we get from fossil fuels is so overwhelmingly positive, and you know that compared to the side effects or byproducts is is um, again it's overwhelmingly positive. Let's see, any, any news? The main news is I'm working on my book, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Make sure to order a copy or 10 or 100 at Amazon.com. Uh, it's gotten on some of the subject-specific bestseller lists, so I want to get you know, a couple thousand at least pre-orders in the next couple of months to alert people that there's real interest in this book. Uh, I have a month to submit it to the publisher now. I've written the draft, and now I'm editing it, so it's going to be a very very fast and furious uh, period, uh, but I think I think we'll end up with something I'm, I'm really, really happy with. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have a couple more discussions about topics related to the book uh, leading into then. And with that, 
as always, if you need to contact me with questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels, and twitter.com slash Alex Epstein. Um, next week, we will be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.